Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I know that today you were all expecting to hear the interview with David Dobbs, and that was the plan for today's episode. So first, let me apologize that this is not happening today. It is happening, but it looks like it's going to be next week now. And believe me that no one is more disappointed than I am. Dobbs and I had exchanged several emails last week and had even spoken on the phone for a few minutes. He is most definitely willing to do the interview, and we were planning to record this Thursday. Unfortunately, I spoke to Dobbs on Tuesday this week, and he said that he wants another week to prepare. This case took place almost 20 years ago. He said that he's listened to some of the podcasts, but not all of the podcasts, and he wants to make sure that he researches as much as possible about what happened back in 1998 when the trial occurred before he comes on the air and interviews. At this point, we are hoping to record on either Monday or Tuesday of next week, and we should have the David Dobbs interview ready for you. I'll keep you posted on social media as to when that interview is going to actually occur. But luckily, I had another interview lined up this week, so we're going to swap the two episodes. This week, we're going to hear from a man named Christopher Scott. Chris is a man who actually served time in prison with Ed and was exonerated through a conviction integrity unit. And now Chris is working to help other inmates get exonerated. Rather than me tell you all about it, I'm going to let Chris go ahead and tell you his story of conviction, exoneration, and his time spent in prison with Ed Eights. All right, I'm on the phone today with Chris Scott. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing just great. Thanks for having me. We're so glad you took the time to get on the phone with me today. I'd like to start off by having you explain what happened with you. I know that you were convicted. It was in Dallas County, correct? That's correct. What was the crime you were convicted of? First, they charged me with capital murder. And then once they uh, did the forensic report and they came back, because I was booked as being the shooter. So when they came back and found out, you know, it wasn't no gunpowder residue on my hands, on my clothes, my nostrils, my hair. And they were like, well, we know this guy didn't shoot the person or he didn't pull the trigger. So now we have to go after somebody else. So they end up re-indicting me on an aggravated sexual assault case along with capital murder. So they felt like if the capital murder couldn't stick, the aggravated sexual assault would have stuck on me. So instead of dropping the murder charge, since they knew it wasn't you, they kept the murder charge but added another charge as a backup? 
Yeah, they added aggravated sexual assault because apparently when the two guys was robbing her fiancé or whatever he was, they fondled her while they was trying to check her for money or whatever the case may be, and she told them they sexually assaulted her. Oh, wow. And so you were convicted of both, or what were you convicted of? Yeah, I was convicted of both. I was convicted of aggravated sexual assault and capital murder. And what was your sentence? Capital life sentence, which I would have had to do 40 years to be eligible for parole. So you got convicted, and you said you went into prison in 1997? That's correct. Okay, and then how long did you serve in prison before you finally got out? 13 years. Oh, God. How were you finally exonerated? Well, basically, it pretty much started in 2002 because the guy that actually committed the crime is so crazy. He confessed to my brother and didn't know this guy was my brother. Okay. See, my brother was incarcerated with Alonzo Hardy, and my brother was a barber inside of the prison. And one day, Alonzo Hardy came to the barbershop, and he was explaining to the guys in the barbershop how him and his friend robbed and killed somebody and got away with it, and there was two other guys in prison for the crime they committed. So mm-hmm. my brother was like, what? Do you know anything about the guys that is in prison now? He was like, yeah. So he was like, well, who is the guy that they sent is you. So he said, well, his name was Christopher Scott. He worked at Tom Thumb as a produce supervisor. He got two kids. His girlfriend's name is Brandy. He drive a green and gold Lexus. He knew too much about me. So my brother was like, look, dude, that's my little brother you're talking about. And he was like, no, nah. he was like, yeah, my brother's name is Christopher Scott. Yeah, and he was dating Brandy, and he do have two kids, and that's the color of his car. And he works for Tom Thumb. So that's my little brother you're talking about. So the guy was, like, pretty surprised and stunned. So my brother told him, like, look, you're going to have to file an affidavit saying my brother had nothing to do with this, didn't have no knowledge of it. Or the rest of your days in prison going to be a living hell because you're going to have to deal with me and my people down here. Mm-hmm. So he ended up doing the affidavit. But being we had Henry Wade, which had a high conviction rate in Dallas County, which he was the DA for 37 years, and all of us knew he was a racist DA or whatever the case may be, and he didn't want to take the case because it was a non-DNA case. And they was like, we don't deal with non-DNA cases. It's not a system made up because who would say that you're telling the truth and there's no evidence to bag it up? So, you know, they just washed it up under the table. Okay. Until 2006. When 2006 came, we had the first African-American district attorney in the state of Texas, which was Craig Watkins. And when he seen the case, he was like, well, you know, this may have some marriage to it. It may not. So he gave it to an uh, innocence clinic at University of Texas in Arlington. And he gave it to an undergraduate student. She was like an 11th grader. And she was trying to be into criminal justice or whatever the case may be. And she eventually broke the case wide open because she came and saw me at my unit. And when she first came, she wanted me to confess to the crime. She was telling me that my co-defendant name is Claude Simmons. She said, well, Claude Simmons has been in prison almost 13 years, Mr. Scott. So I think it's about time for you to tell the truth, sign this affidavit, and we can get Claude Simmons out of prison. And I told her if she came to get a confession from me, she was crazy because it's no way in hell 
that I'm going to confess to a crime that I didn't commit. There's no way I could do that. Right. If, if this being the case, I'm going to be in prison for the rest of my life because I'm not going to tell nobody I did something I didn't do. That's just not how I was raised and brought up. So when I told her that story, she was like, well, you know, tell me what you did that night. I told her from when I woke up in the morning and brushed my teeth until I went to meet Claude Simmons that night. And she was like, this kind of the same story Claude Simmons told her. And I was like, look, lady, I told you that because me and his story matches because we was together and they wouldn't let us testify in each other's trial. So I said, you know, that's why our stories sound so much alike. But it's something I did tell. I say, look, I cannot tell you what Claude did before I got here because I don't have ESP. I don't know what he did. But from the time I picked Cloud up to the time I was arrested first, we just drove around the block a couple of times, went to 7-Eleven and got a Dr. Pepper and came back to his house, and I was booked for capital murder. So how did you end up being a suspect? Well, basically, the police had a police scanner, and they went over their scanner. Two African-American men just robbed and killed a Hispanic. Now, here's the description they gave. Middle-aged black guy, middle height, medium weight, with a low haircut. So when they came up with a scanner, and I tell them, like, how many black men in America are you describing when you describe middle-aged black guy, medium height, medium weight, with a low haircut? Now, you can walk outside wherever you at, whatever city you is, and their description matches half of the black men you may pass just in 20 to 30 minutes. Right. So it was pretty much profiling African-American men as if we see these individuals, it's our duty to either arrest them, question them, or harass them. So me knowing the system, I'm like, well, these cops here pretty much got tunnel vision right now because they only looking for this description. But the description that they gave us was wrong. I was middle age at the time. I was six feet. Mm-hmm. And I was like 125 pounds, 130 pounds, I was a real skinny guy. Right. And my co-defendant was really not too much bigger than me. So when they saw the first two African-American men that they saw that night, which was me and Claude Simmons, but the lady that did it, she couldn't even see in my side of my car because I had limo tent on my windows. She saw us when we got out the car. Because it was so many other officers that night passed us by, like, wasn't even paying no attention to it. But you're always going to have that one overzealous cop that go beyond what they're supposed to be doing. So eventually, me and Claude went inside his house. We sit down, and the cops called the house and told us that we need to come out. And they were like, come out for what? We just want to question some people about something happened. Now, we're not knowing what's going on. Maybe 10, 15 minutes later, I said, okay, let's go out and see what they're talking about. So as we coming out, the cops bum rush the house. I'm sitting on the couch, and as soon as I look up, I have about eight officers standing in front of me. All of them have guns drawn. Wow. And my whole thing was like, why does it take eight officers to draw their gun on one guy to escort him out the house? Now, I'm not even knowing what I'm being escorted out. So when I get outside, it's 10 of us laying on the ground. And they picked the one in the middle, which was me. But everybody on the right side of me that was laying down was the actual people that committed the crime. 
they was laying right on side of me. They made a joke about it. They picked me up, and they walked a white detective up to me, and they said, you know who this is? I'm like, no, I never met this guy. I don't know who he is. They say, this is Columbo. I said, Columbo? He said, do you remember the TV series Columbo? I said, yeah, I pretty much grew up in that era. And he said, so you know Columbo always gets his man. So you will be found guilty of this crime. And I'm like, what crime are you talking about? I don't even know what crime you're talking about. I'm just following instructions that y'all giving me of what to do. So eventually they put some liquid substance on my hand, let it drip in the bag to see if I fired the gun. Mm-hmm. They escort me to a police car. They say, look, a lady is going to come identify you here. If she can't identify you, we have to let you go. I said, okay, fine. So I'm like, I know whoever this lady is. She have never seen me before because that part of the neighborhood, I never go into. I never crosses a certain part of the neighborhood because if you know trouble is on that end, stay away from that end. And I knew it was trouble on that end, so I pretty much stayed away from it. So this one, I knew the plot thickened. Okay. When a robbery happened, a female was supposed to go in, gape out the place, see if they got drugs and money, and which they did. When my girlfriend pulled up, they said, that's the lady that set the robbery up. Me and my girlfriend been at home all day long. Mm -hmm. So they thought my girlfriend was the lady that set the robbery up. So they took all of us to jail, where they took all of us downtown to the Capers building, which is crimes against persons. They ended up handcuffing me to a bench in front of a big glass door, but everybody else, it was about 20, 20 one of us went to, you know, jail that night. They put everybody else on the opposite side of the room so they couldn't be seen. The only person could be seen is me handcuffed to a bench in front of a glass door. So the cop walks the lady up to me and points at me and say, this is the guy that killed your husband. The lady say, yes, that's him. But needless to say, I didn't shoot a pistol because it all came out that I wasn't the shooter. When the lady said, that's him, and a cop coached her to say, that's him, they end up taking me to interrogation room. And I'm like, man, what am I being interrogated for? They didn't mention the murder case. They mentioned drugs. Like, who you get your drugs from? I heard you was a kingpin drug dealer in a neighborhood. I say, sir. When you arrested me, you took a paycheck stub out of my pocket that was cash and an uncashed check. What kingpin works at Tom Thumb as a produce supervisor? I don't know no <laughs> kingpin that works at Tom Thumb. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. When I told them that, they kind of got an attitude. Well, you know what we're talking about, where you get your drugs from. We want the drugs. Then I say, sir, I work five to six days out of a week at Tom's Thumb. Ask anybody in the neighborhood. Because where I worked at was the same neighborhood that I caught this murder case in. Mm-hmm. And everybody, that's how I really ran in the cloud. Everybody used to come to the grocery store and want me to go get them, like, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables out the bag. They didn't want the stuff that was out. They want me to go in the back and get them. That's how I built a lot of relationships with the people that shopped at that store. When I got tired of the interrogation, I just went in the corner and laid down on them, like, man, I'm not going to play these games with you. So maybe an hour and a half later, they woke me up. They sit me in a chair. You know, typical cop stuff. They put a Dr. Pepper in front of me and a cigarette. They say, do you smoke? Yes, I smoke. But I don't want a cigarette from you all. I don't want your soda. So you can take that and do whatever you want to do with it. I need to use the restroom. They said, okay, you can use the restroom because you can't go anywhere. Now, to myself, I'm like, I know. I've watched enough cop shows. So I know once I walk out the interrogation room and look up, whatever I'm being questioned for, it's on top of the door. It said homicide. Then things start to click. And no wonder they put this stuff on my head. They want to see if I fired a gun. I said, okay, I know ain't none of that happened. So I'm pretty much okay. So I go back to interrogation room. And now I'm like, look, I'm not asking no questions without a lawyer. Give me my lawyer. Then I talk to my lawyer and y'all can talk to him. So they kept asking questions, and I told them again, look, give me a lawyer. If I don't have a lawyer here, then I'm not answering no more questions. They said, okay, well, don't worry about it. You're going to jail. What am I going to jail for? You're going to jail for capital murder. See, I didn't even know what capital murder meant because uh-huh. I had never been involved in nothing like that before. So they said, you're going to jail for capital murder. I'm like, capital murder? I'm like, what's that? They started laughing like it was funny, like. Every black guy know what capital murder mean or something. I didn't know what it meant. So as I'm walking out of the interrogation room and they escort me, a cop stops them and said, I need to speak to Christopher Scott for a minute. They say, go ahead on. He said, Mr. Scott, I need to tell you something. I'm like, what's that, sir? He said, I don't believe you committed this crime. I say, what? He said, I do not believe you committed this crime. I'm going to tell you why. He said, for one, this lady just saw you five minutes prior to us putting you in the lineup. She couldn't identify you. The reason she said she couldn't identify you is because of the fact that she was scared of you. He's saying, this is what I told her. I said, how could you be scared of a man that's handcuffed? And ma'am, you have 12 officers around you right now. What reason could you be scared to pick this guy out of a lineup? You don't know if this the guy or not because this is not the guy that actually committed this crime. And he said, she can't identify you. I don't believe her. And he said, another thing that made me look at it sideways, you got a check in your pocket that's not cash and a cash check in your pocket. You wear groomed, you wear dressed, you drive a nice car, you talk correct English, he said, this is not a crime that fits you. This is a crime that kind of fits a dope fiend, someone that uses drugs. 
He said, I don't see you committing this crime. So this is what I'm going to tell you. I want you to subpoena me to court, and I will testify in your behalf to say it's nothing linking you to this crime but this lady's words. We had no murder weapon. We had no fingerprints. We had no positive ID. We have none because the clothes description they gave wasn't the description of the clothes that me or my co-defendant had on. These guys uh-huh. had on Texas Longhorn hat, tricolor jackets. When they got me, I had on a leather jacket with some Arjun sneakers with some doctors with a polo shirt on. And these guys had on jeans, button-down shirts. This how it was described to the cops. And I'm like, where does this description that they gave over the police scanner fit me? So I end up going to jail, but the cop told me, if you subpoena me to court, I may be the only one that can get you out of this trouble because I don't think you committed this crime. Mr. Scott subpoenaed me to court. They give me a million-dollar bond, and seven, maybe eight days later, my lawyer comes see me the first and the only time I see him before I go to trial. And he came to tell me, they did the ballistic reports on you. Everything came up negative. No gunpowder residue on your clothes, your hands, your nostrils, your hair, nothing. But they went and picked up Claude Simmons, my co-defendant, and just charged him with the murder case. And they didn't even see if he had fired a gun or not. They just say, well, even with you, that's who's going to get the murder charge. Cloud is getting a capital murder charge with you. I'm like, man, this is crazy. So my lawyer wanted to work a deal with me to testify against Cloud to say Cloud did it. And I'm like, dude, I have to be 100% sure that this man committed this crime before I sit up and say, okay, I know he committed this crime, so I testify against it. And I tell everybody that if you're not 100% sure these people did it, don't say they did it because you may be sending an innocent person to prison. So after we got all of that out the way, I go to trial. But before I go to trial, I have to pick my jury panel. We went through three different jury panels. The first one came in and said, if you don't have no physical evidence, we can't find him guilty. The next 12 to 15 to 20 people they brought in, if you don't have no physical evidence, we're not going to find him guilty. They brought in a third group. They said the same thing, like, what do you have besides this lady word? Well, we can't find him guilty. Then one African-American guy stood up on the third, fourth time and said, I could find him guilty just because of that lady word. And it was like a domino effect. It was 12 mm-hmm. more white people agreed, and I had all 12 white jury members. So when I go to court, I'm looking at this. All 12 white jury members. My judge is white. My lawyer is white. The prosecutor is white. The second in the chair is white. The bailiff that's escorting me to court is white. I'm like, man, only thing of color just me and the furniture up in here. <laughs> well, don't worry about that. We think we got you a good jury panel. How am I going to have a good jury panel with 12 white people trying to convict an African-American man? So my judge told me, she said, Miss Scott, this is a capital murder case. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, this is life and death. I said, yes, ma'am, I know. Now, she said, tell me why we shouldn't seek the death penalty. If you can give me a right answer today, we won't seek it. So I'm like, is they playing games with my life, like Russian relay or something? And the only thing I told her, I said, Judge, how could you kill an innocent man? And she looked at me for a second and said, Mr. Scott, you just saved your own life today. We're not going after the death penalty, but we're going after a capital life sentence. I was like, thank you, Judge. 
so you pretty much saved my life because if I just saved this, I was found guilty and put on death row. It's a chance I could have been dead in those 13 years I did. Right. So I thank you for not doing that for my life. You gave me a second chance at life because I can come back and fight this case. So my Catholic murder trial lasted maybe three hours, four hours. Friday afternoon, they got over, so they deliberated through the weekend. So Monday, they come back with a verdict of guilty. They called me in, and everybody was like, man, they took them a long time to deliberate. So when they take a long time to deliberate, that means they it's something that they see that they didn't like because maybe they didn't see enough to find you guilty. I said, okay, everybody got my host high that I was going to be found not guilty. But me, myself, I already knew that I was going to be found guilty just because of the circumstances I'm facing when you got everything in the courtroom white besides you and the furniture, you already know this is unfair and unjust. So I know I'm going to prison. I'm already getting my heart and mind set for going to prison. She come back. She said, we're Miss Scott, former Reed. You found guilty of capital murder, uh, aggravated capital life sentence. In order to be eligible for parole, you got to do 40 years. I was like, okay, cool. Is it anything you want to say? I say, yes, let me hug my family. She say, that's fine. I hug them. Anything else you like to say? I say, yeah, you convicted the wrong man. And I felt like I had a very unfair trial. I don't think my lawyer did his best to represent me. And maybe in the next few years, I'll be back in the same courtroom getting exonerated because I didn't commit this crime. I walked out. As I'm walking out, my co-defendant walking in. By the time I made it to my cell, his trial was already over. Deliberation came in in three minutes. He was found guilty in three minutes. Are you kidding? They deliberated. They said it was the fastest deliberation in, in Dallas County's court history. He was found guilty in three minutes. Oh, my God. How long was his trial? Probably shorter than mine <laughs> because you got to understand I'm up there with him. So it takes us like two, three hours to go back to our tank. By right. the time I got to my tank and called home, he was already found guilty and sentenced to a capital life sentence. So that was maybe four or five hours and his court was over and his deliberation was over. That's insane. You're like as an Ed's trial, there's a two week trial and a three day deliberation. I can't even imagine yeah. a three-hour capital murder trial. Yeah, three, four hours, my trial was over. We get the time, come back. Maybe a month later, I was on my way to prison. What capital murder I did not commit. Wow. So let's jump to uh, back up to when you got exonerated, and then I want to talk a little bit about your time in prison when you were there with okay. Edward Aids. This undergrad student came and visited you at the direction of the prosecuting attorney, and how did she mm -hmm. eventually get you exonerated? Well, basically, I didn't even know. They had already brought the guy that confessed to my brother back. He did a deposition, then he did a polygraph test. The deposition went good, and a polygraph test was accurate to say that I had no knowledge of it and I had nothing to do with it. So once he passed it, it gave them some kind of inclination like, well, maybe he's telling the truth. So now what we have to do is get these other guys back and have them do the same thing, do a deposition, then do a polygraph test. And if they pass, it's going to be the first time two men was exonerated at the same time without no DNA. It's unheard of. 
Yeah. Boy, this guy to come forward and confess to capital murder. He confessed to it. Other organizations in Innocent Project, all of them told me, you got a million and one chance to make it. I wrote University of Houston, Texas, Lubbock, all kind of organizations. They say, hey, we never did a non-DNA thing. And I doubt very seriously if a non-DNA case would ever exist in criminal court of appeals. Basically, we telling you it's nothing we can do for you, and it'll be a million and one chance if a person come back and confess to capital murder. And I was like, man, you know what? I'm going to be that one out of a million person that get out of here with no DNA. That's exactly how it happened. But pretty much they was telling me that I was a throw-in, which was great. Because they were like, we throwing you in because we wanted you to confess to the crime to let Kyle Simmons go. But now here it is that neither one of y'all committed this crime. So this is going to be even greater celebration because two of y'all did not instead of one. So the prosecutor was behind helping get this conviction corrected. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. The whole story is amazing, and it's incredible that, that you were able to get out and that the prosecutor was doing his due diligence to let that happen. That, so that was in 97. So what, 2010, you've been out for about six years. Is that right? I got out in 2009. I celebrated my seventh year yesterday. Well, day before, the 24th was my seventh year out of prison. And this month is special to me because October the 9th is my birthday. October the 13th, we got a guy out of prison that did 40 years for a crime he didn't commit. You're talking about my you- organization, yeah, we, we got Isaiah here released out of prison. After doing 41 years in prison. Oh, wow. All right. Right now, Chris, I'm going to take a quick break for us to hear from our sponsor, and then we're going to get back. I want to talk about your time in prison with Ed, and then I want to talk about uh, what you're doing now and what you just accomplished here this month. Sounds good. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I went to prison in 97. I hit Cofield in 97, and Ed H, he hit Cofield in 98. So I'd say pretty much almost 12 years we spent on the same unit together. Yeah. Yeah. But did, were you guys in the same area of the prison? Did you guys know each other? Yeah, for the most of the time, like, yeah, we lived on the same wings together. We went to Rick together pretty much every day. We shot basketball a lot. And it's something about being incarcerated with guys like that because, you know, Yates, he's a big guy. See, in prison, we call him Big E. Big E was his nickname? Big E was his nickname we gave him in prison. You know, he shot ball real good, and he was a big guy, you know what I mean? Yeah, we spent a lot of time together, and actually, we even discussed our cases with each other several times. And he told me about the case he was on. And I'm looking at, I used to get mad at him so much because I'm like, dude, you six, seven, six, eight, three hundred and something pounds, and you don't like to bang in the paint. You want to shoot jumpers. You want to play at the top of the key, at the free throw. 
And I used to get on it. Hey, dude, you just a little too soft to be six, seven, six, eight, <laughs> three hundred and something pounds. And when he told me about the murder he was charged with, I couldn't see this guy. He's like a big kid about me. You know, he's friendly. He don't want to fight nobody. He don't want to be involved in nothing physical. He just want to play ball. He want to eat his food. And he just want to, you know, read and crack jokes and play games or whatever the case may be. But when he told me that, I said, you were supposed to be in slice somebody's throat. And I thought he was lying about it. I said, man, come on. I said, I just can't see you doing nothing like that. Say, Scott, man, that's exactly what happened. And then when I say, heard it, I was like, man, Big E, I'm sorry, man, but I just can't believe that you have committed a crime where you didn't, you know, cut somebody's throat. I mean, that don't even fit who you are. You know, a lot of guys leave the street and bring that same kind of street mentality into prison. Mm-hmm. Everybody that heard about this case was like, man, you know, we don't even believe that. Go on, no, you, you down here for something else. He was like, nah, that's what I'm in here for. And I'm like, man, I can't believe somebody as soft and friendly as you could be like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of guy. I just don't see it because being locked up with a guy that long, you'll see so many different personalities come out of that person. But right. I've seen the same guy every day for almost 12 years. A tall, big guy that's real friendly that probably wouldn't even hurt a mosquito or fly if it landed on him or whatever the case may be. You know, it's funny, that's the same thing that I got from a guy named Kenny Snow, who actually ended up testifying against Ed that's trying to help him now. He says it was false testimony, but he was locked up with him in the county jail, and he told me the same thing. Mm-hmm. He's like, I just cannot see. For as big as he is, he's like the nicest guy that I've ever met. He ain't looking for no trouble, and if you try to start some trouble with him, he gonna try to talk you out of it. Like, look, brother, man, you know, I'm a big guy. I'm not a fighter. That's not what I do. I like to eat. <laughs> play dominoes and watch TV and play basketball. And that's what we did pretty much all the time when we was on the same wing together. We used to eat with each other every day. We used to make spreads in the day room, sit back and watch sports. And we had regular TV in prisons and we didn't have cable and sit back and watch regular, you know, TV shows that comes on TV. That's it. He was the guy that never really got cases. He didn't get in trouble in prison. Everybody respected him because he was a big guy, you know, not one of those guys just pushing their weight around. He was just a real friendly, down-to-earth type of guy. Right. Yeah, and it's funny because he's talking about any any charges he got or disciplinary action. I was actually talking to him about that a couple of weeks ago, and he was going through mm-hmm. his list of any citations he's had, and most of them it sounded like related to food. Uh, he said at one point his job was like taking food out of the kitchen or trying to because you know sometimes you get in a bind where your family can't help you and you're struggling so you got to take some out the kitchen because you see how big big he is yeah so the food they feed us in prison man that that is not enough my grandson don't wouldn't get pulled off of that food and he's three years old right he can eat to be three years old that food wouldn't even fill him up. He'll be like, Pow, Pow, I'm still hungry. I want some more food to eat. Right. That's just how it is. So if he got in trouble, trust and believe, I know it was about either two things, food or smoking cigarettes. We all know smoking cigarettes is illegal in prison. But damn, if I'm down there for capital murder, 
I want a cigarette because I got to have something to calm my nerves down. Right. I mean, it is what it is. They banned them out the system, but cigarettes still got in there, and we all smoke cigarettes down there, so we got to cope some kind of way. Yeah. He was telling me a story of at one point his job was to clean up the visiting room, and when he would leave, all the food that would get left over took it back. He said, man, I had like a Thanksgiving dinner back in my rack, and they came back and caught me and wrote me up for taking all that food. Yeah, you get caught with all that food coming out the kitchen. Yeah, they'll write you a case for it. But knowing him, he didn't really get in too much trouble behind him because he's been over there for a while. People know Biggie is not going to be a violent guy. If I see a guy stealing some food out the kitchen, man, what I'm going to do? This big guy, I know this amount of food is not going to feel no guy up six, seven, six, eight. No way. Yeah, and I was I was going through his disciplinary record, and it's things like that. And I think five times he was cited for not shaving is the extent of his disciplinary record. Never a fight, never anything violent, nothing like that. Yeah, no, they want you to shave with razors. Majority of those guys' face can't take razors. You're going to bump up. Who want to walk around with face that hurts because you're going to shave with a razor that you know is going to be bad for you? So I'll probably have to get a case, too. Like, look, give me a clip of shave. If I can't get a clip of shave, I'm going to accept this case because I'm not going to put a razor on my face, and I know two days later, I'm going to be looking like a $10 peanut patty, <laughs> a peanut brittle by the neck. I'm sorry. <laughs> I ain't going to be able to do it. You know, when you walk around with a $10 peanut patty up under your neck, and everybody like, man, look, go in there and put this over here to try to get them bumps off. Don't nobody want to go visit their parents with this under their neck. You know what I mean? I don't mm-hmm. care being incarcerated or not. You want to be presentable for your family. Right. So that's a case I think all of us would have took, not just him, but all of us. Yep. So the big question is, is his jump shot as good as he says it is? Oh, yeah. He got a nice game. <laughs> I ain't going to take that from him. But it was, it used to frustrate me so much because me and Big E, we won championships in prison. And by that time, I was gaining some weight because I went in six feet, like 130. When I started eating and working in the kitchen and lifting weights, I end up to 215 in a matter of years. Wow. Because Ed said that he was a cook for a while. Did you cook with Ed? Yeah. Actually, we cooked for the officers because I worked in the ODR. I was in the officer dining room, so I cooked for the officers. Okay. Ed seemed to really enjoy cooking. That was, that was he thought, was one of the better jobs to have in the prison. Yeah, because you can eat what you want to eat in the kitchen. <laughs> That's the whole reason. Getting in the kitchen because you can eat. That's how I gained my weight. I went to eat oatmeal and peanut butter in the kitchen. You have a way of eating and getting yourself full enough so you wouldn't be hungry later on that afternoon or later on that night. Yeah, the kitchen was one of the best jobs to have. Yeah, that explains why Ed was so happy about working in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Free food for you. <laughs> All right, Chris, before I let you go, I want to have you explain what are you doing now? Since you got out in 2009, uh, you, you mentioned that you just got somebody exonerated. What are you doing now? Well, I formed this organization called House Renewed Hope. And what we do, we look into cases of actual innocence. And in most cases, I like to focus on our non-DNA cases because they're the hardest ones to break. Because we know if you get a DNA case, if it don't fit, it's not you. If whatever evidence they have pointing towards you and it's not yours, then you should be exonerated. 
dealing with a non-DNA case, you got to have a lot of evidence, and somebody actually got to either come back and recant the story, or you had to find new discovered evidence. And what happened in the case I got the guy out of 41 years, he can't read or write. Some one of his cellmates wrote to me, and I end up going to see him. And at the time, we was filming this documentary. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make you be a part of my documentary. So I went to see him, and the way he came to me, when he first seen me, he bust out in tears. He said, nobody was here to help me. I reached out to a lot of people, and everybody turned their back on me. And then he went to tell me how four guys raped him when he was in prison. He ended up seeing inmates get killed. So they end up hiding him in a feds for 33 years because he was like, man, these guys, then they're going to kill you if you ever get in the population because you told it. So they hid him in a fed of prison for 33 years. So when I got his case, I was like, man, we got to help this guy. And I end up tracking down a guy that committed the crime. But the guy that committed the crime wouldn't confess. He like, out for the camera, I tell you, yeah, I did it. But on camera, I'm not going to confess to it because I don't trust the judicial system. I say, man, statute of limitation law has ran out. So you won't get choked. I said, I can get a written letter from my attorney that got me out and a district attorney office that's willing to work with us to let you know that you won't get recharged for it. He did not do it. I had to go tell a guy at that time that was locked up 39 years that this guy wasn't going to confess. So I told him right there, it wasn't an exoneration. Uh-huh. What I told him was, I can't get you exonerated because there's no new discovered evidence out there and this guy don't recant. I guarantee you I can get you paroled. Guarantee. He was like, Mr. Scott, I done been up for parole seven, eight, maybe ten times, and I done been denied each time. I ended up doing a news article with men's journals. So mm-hmm. they sent the editor-in-chief from Rolling Stone magazine to do an article on me, and I said, the only way I'm going to do this article, if you got to put this case in that article, to get in some national coverage. He say, i do that for you if you do the story. I say, well, you got your story if you let me put this case in there. So he went down there, the editor from Rolling Stone. He also talked to Isaiah Hill. I talked to him. I got five support letters from major people, a guy that worked for NPR Radio that did a story on me and Isaiah Hill, documentary people, pillars of our communities. I got them a parole package together. I got those support letters together. Then I set up a parole interview to talk to the lady that's over parole. And I talked to her for about 45 minutes and told her what we had planned for Isaiah. We got a halfway house for him. He got a big support system. She said, yeah, I've seen the support letters. I've seen the parole packages. I usually don't let a person out that done this much time before. I usually send him to a center where he can get his stuff together. I never give an inmate an F-I-1. After I talked to her and gave her all the information that I had, one week later, the thing she said she would never do, she did it. She gave him an FI-1 so he would be released in the next 25 to 30 days. She did that maybe 22 or 23 days later. He was being released out of prison. I drove to Huntsville where he was getting out at the walls. And that was the last scene of our documentary, too. We wanted to see somebody released and freed out of prison. After 41 years, and it took working this case, getting everything together, and after four years, I finally got him out. 
That is awesome, Chris. And it's 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 amazing that once you got out that you use your resources to help get other people out. Before we end this, can you one more time say what is the name of your organization? My organization is Hassel Renewed Hope. You can go to www.hassrenewedhope.org. And it's a new thing I have called On the Steps with Christopher Scott. I'm literally sitting on the steps doing interviews with people from judges to politicians to people that got exonerated to people married to exonerees. I just want the whole world to see the effect that it has on not just the people that was incarcerated wrongfully, just the whole family aspect of how wrongful conviction destroys lives. In the first interview I did, which we did it last week, and then to be on my blog next week, was the guy that we just got released out of prison after doing 41 years. That's my first interview of On the Steps with Christopher Scott. Well, that's awesome website is houseofrenewedhope.org. Is there a place on the website uh-huh. where any of the listeners can contribute to help support the cause? Yeah, they can go to they can go to www.houserenewedhope.org and it has a donation button on there, which it goes to PayPal and shoots it straight into House Renewed Hope's account. That's great. All right, Chris, well, I'll let you go. Thank you again so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Okay, for any of you that did not catch the name of that website, it is houseofrenewedhope.org. All right, so I know that this wasn't the David Dobbs interview you were all expecting, but hopefully you all enjoyed it. I thought it was a really interesting interview, and it's interesting to see just how corrupt the criminal justice system can be in showing us how Christopher Scott was convicted in the first place and even arrested, but also what can be done when you have a prosecutor that's willing to do the right thing. And hopefully as we move forward, and I do talk to David Dobbs next week, and as we continue to move forward with Edward Eight's case, maybe at some point we can finally get David Dobbs and Matt Bingham to step up and help us do the right thing and free Ed Eight's. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Michael Bussing. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn for transcribing all of the episodes. Thank you to today's sponsors, Blue Apron, for funding today's episode. And I hope the audio quality of this episode is okay. I'm recording this from a hotel room. I'm out on assignment this week, and I have kind of a portable rig set up. I know that there was some cutting in and out towards the end of the interview with Chris. Hopefully that's not too bothersome. But next week we'll be back in the studio, and hopefully we'll have that interview with David Dobbs. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send me new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.